listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Subversive. Humorous. Live. Dr. Jen Kirby is an Irish composer, performer, software developer, and academic based in Swansea. Her work ranges from instrumental composition to electroacoustic to laptop orchestra and the performance of live electronics. Jen's work explores elements of theatricality, humor, and subversion. Jen works as the program director for music performance and production at the University of Wales Trinity St. David, where she teaches composition and music technology. Much of Jen's research is focused on the performance of electronic music, the output from which includes the foundation of the Swansea Laptop Orchestra and the creation of software for new music performance, and the repurposing of controllers and interfaces as musical performance instruments. So I wanted to start talking about, uh, start off with your piece, Phonetics. And uh, this is a piece for live voice and live electronics. And the electronics are being controlled using a device that has, uh, it looks like two strings coming up from it, from the floor. So what, what is that that you're using? Uh, it's a game track controller. Right? So, okay. it's, um, so it's essentially a hacked video game controller. So it used to, used to, it was originally built for, like, I think it was the Xbox first, um, uh, for a golf game. And so oh, on, okay. the, on the end of these two strings, you would clip them to a pair of gloves and you would hold this uh, little miniature plastic golf club and you would practice your swing. Um, so, so this, yeah, this game could would have come out quite a while back. And I think the game itself was a complete, complete flop. But luckily, they made like <laughs> they made tons of these devices, and they're they're incredibly resolute. So I was first introduced to them by Dan Truman, who works at Princeton. He set up the with a few others set up the Princeton Laptop Orchestra. Um, so they were using them first. So when I met him, he he, he showed us these controllers as well. Um, so and before that, you know, I would have just been working with MIDI. Um, not that there's anything wrong with MIDI. MIDI's great, but but you're kind of you know. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you know you've got zero to one two seven with MIDI, whereas right, these yeah. controllers, uh, they go zero to four thousand and ninety five. So you're not, you know, it, it means you get to move a lot more. Uh, you can be a lot more expressive with things. Um, yeah, and it just kind of involves a lot more physical movement, which is something that yeah, I, I, I found myself quite attached to in in performance. You know. Um, mm-hmm. that, Oh, so so you have uh, what was it four hundred or four thousand and ninety five different values? Yes. So that it's giving you, and that's from like the, the completely uh, pulled out to all the way down, basically down to the floor. And then yeah. is that are you controlling the uh, the live electronics through Max or some some other program? So yeah, I I work in Max primarily. So okay. the um. I mean, like effectively, this controller, right, is like two joysticks. So it's got an X and a Y, but it's also got this Z that you make, you can lift it up. So you do you do have that four thousand points on three different axes axes in two hands. So that mm. gives you six points to work with. So that then is a lot more. So essentially, you know, your zero is like if you had a pitch wheel and you have it down and then you bring it up to, well, that, that would be 255 with a pitch wheel. So that's your zero to 255. And this is zero on the ground to you taking a few steps back with your arms outstretched. And that's getting to 
4,000 until you just run out of fishing wire effectively. And it seems it seems like looking through your website that you are working with this controller quite a bit. Like I think you have quite a few pieces for this, right? Yeah, so I, I used to use different controllers, but I seem to just always go back to this now, um, which in some ways it's, you know, you can really get caught up by all these things and all these gadgets and it's just so much fun. So I love finding old controllers and going, oh, how can I make something out of that? And most of the time I can just make something rubbish out of it. So it's, but this controller I seem to get a lot, a lot out of. So sometimes it's, you know, you can play different things with it. But the other thing is when you're going doing live shows, when live electronics is just a volatile thing to be working with, you really don't mm-hmm. want to be saying, oh, I just need three hours of a setup time, please. Um, you know, so <laughs> it is it is quite helpful to know that, you know, what this controller is really reliable. It's not Bluetooth. It's not OSC. It's just uh, working over a USB you know, and I know it's reliable and I've bring spares with me in case I break it because I do that as well. <laughs> <laughs> so what kinds of things are in this piece in particular, what kinds of uh, effects or, or processes are you putting on the live voice using this controller? Okay, so there's a there's a few things going on in different stages. It's got about five stages, that piece. Um, and the first one is just, it's just a harmonizer or it's it's a pitch shifter, actually. The harmonizer comes later, I think. Um, mm. and so what I'm doing with that is um, it's only mapped really to one axis that I'm just picking the pitches uh, that, I, that I'm going to pitch my voice to, I suppose. So by moving my arm from left to right, I can produce different pitches from this. Um, and that's, the funny thing about that is, is because you are, you really are just dealing with your, your hand in space and you start to try and um, kind of get muscle memory around performing some of these types of things because you remember that, oh, when I have my hand around here, it's kind of, I'm standing this kind of direction and I have my arm, you know, kind of in front of my right shoulder. And then you start to think, oh, it's by doing that, that uh, that, that seems to be that pitch. And then when I move my arm and you, you get a sense of how much distance you have between between different notes, actually, but you're dealing with, working with mid in midair as opposed to having um, your fingers on a fingerboard I suppose uh, so that's kind of what that's doing then and this it definitely like, calls it, to mind the um the the theremin I mean just <laughs> having having that muscle memory I mean you're you're actually holding on to something you're not completely untethered but yeah I mean I <laughs> it, it, is, it seems it seems like it's a little bit difficult uh, I would think it's not as difficult as playing the theremin, though. You know, the, the okay. good thing with this is that you can you can make it as easy or as hard as you want, right? Uh, because you're in complete control of what mm-hmm. this data does. Um, so you can have it so you can't make a mistake. I think it's more exciting when I can make mistakes because when I can make mistakes, it means mm. I can play badly and I can play well. <laughs> you know, uh, and if I if, if I don't do that and I just always play the same, I probably would lose some interest and. It would be difficult right. to call yourself a, a musician and a performer if if you can't play good and bad. I suppose it's helpful if you know you can play badly. It means that there's an opportunity to play well as well. You you mentioned that you were introduced to uh, you were introduced to this particular controller at Princeton. Was that what was that the point that you kind of got interested in gesture control and working and working with controllers in general? Like, is this? You you said you've kind of hacked some other ones. So what are some of the other controllers that you've worked with? Um, so let me think. You know, there's a kind of usual things that a lot of people go to, like the Wiimote and uh, and mm-hmm. things like that as well. So I have found 
Uh, I've <laughs> actually, I'll tell you about my most ridiculous recent purchase, maybe, um, was I found this game that was built, it was a football game, it was built for like FIFA and all these things, like, uh, I don't know, in the <laughs> 90s, okay? And it's uh-huh. like this football that's attached to this base on a mat on the ground, and and it's you know and and there's two infrared poles behind it so when you cross your leg through that infra- infrared pole and you break uh you break the signal uh then and you you kick the different sides of this ball you can you get different data different or different bits of data from it so you know as soon as i see a controller the first thing is i want to know what data do you get because then i know what i can mm-hmm. do with this data you know um and most of the time i find out that all these con- the controllers were pretty primitive and they give you zeros and ones and they don't really give you much resolution <laughs> but i kind of like the challenge of of taking them and seeing what i can do so i did do that recently uh i mean not for performance but but i did try and get that working with a match just for patch. fun yeah and then my poor husband has to is my test dummy a lot of these times so <laughs> <laughs> so i'd hooked up this like every time you kicked it it just spouted different phrases at you so he just stands there like kicking it for ages and going yeah that that's kind of works i don't know you know you have to like kick that kick the football in a musical manner or something it's um it's quite a weird way to, <laughs> to try and work with music uh, but the, yeah, I just Kick, kicking the football in a musical manner. That's great. <laughs> yeah. So that that's how I spend some of my evenings and weekends. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, have you like with this particular piece and the other pieces that you've done with gesture control, um, have you developed notation? for this i mean specifically ones that uh you know you're giving to other people Mm. to play yeah it's it's really tricky actually because the problem with it is that this these kind of controllers they are just controllers and every time you write a piece for them it's performed in a different way so sure Mm -hmm. you probably get a good understanding of using the controller over and over again but even if someone else writes a piece using this controller they still have to teach it to me i don't know how to play it um and there, mm-hmm. so it's it's kind of this, it's a weird learning curve, I suppose, every single time. So then you start mm-hmm. to develop ways in which you teach people how to do this. So it does kind of develop your workshopping skills, I suppose, in that sense. Um, but coming up, I don't think I, I would never come up with a standard way of work, of of notating for this. However, I have yeah. come up with, you know, more you find the standard ways that you do things that are intuitive to you like like I usually have volume on with my left arm uh on the x-axis coming right across my body so that seems to be intuitive for me and then so there's other things that you will you know in the same way that you will think oh you might put pitch in terms of height but it it completely depends because you could be then writing for another instrument that doesn't deal with pitch at all um so mm-hmm. it really is sometimes I, I try and take it from the reverse approach, actually, instead of uh, developing an instrument and then learning how to play it. Recently, what I've been doing is just sitting there with the controller and and playing something and imagining what the instrument is going to do before it's even built and then building an instrument from the perspective of moving around and playing with it. Um, so, for instance, I wanted to build a little kind of uh, a virtual drummer or something, so a little percussion thing where you just get to... It's fun, you get to just bash around these drums that don't exist. It's a little bit of enjoyment. <laughs> and I kind of realized that I kept putting my arm out to the side. And I was like, I didn't program this to do anything. Why do I keep putting my arm out there? I thought, oh, well, I, I guess I want it to do something. So then you think, well, what do I want to happen? And it kind of, so it's this kind of a strange way of kind of building or 
you know, creating kind of gestural programming around designing instruments. But it's it's that you can take it in many different ways. You can approach it in many different ways. And I think that's kind of that makes it quite exciting for me because it means then that you don't that every time it is quite different and every time you approach it in a different manner. So in that sense, the notation becomes different every time and usually the best way to, that I found actually to do this is just to, if you can't be there in person to show someone how to do something, is to produce little videos, actually. Um, so right, I yeah. did I did a piece with um, a double bassist earlier this year called uh, Seth. Oh, I've just blanked on his second name. <laughs> I'll remember it, maybe. It's like, okay. sorry, I can picture it, but for some reason I can't say it. Um, and so, you know, and I, I built like basically this kind of... Uh, software double bass type thing it didn't sound like a double bass but it was performed in the same way a double bass was kind of performed except for certain things mm-hmm. there was i find it i found it more intuitive to have pitch when i put my arm up instead of pitch when i put my arm down which kind of um is a bit backwards to the bass but yeah the idea was not to replace a double bass with an electronic one, you know right, so yeah. so it's fine <laughs> it was just to create kind of this thing that could be kind of played together i suppose um so what i found was uh when I thought, how am I going to explain to him? We were doing an improv piece. So I'd kind of written out a score for us. And I thought, how am I going to explain to him what I'm going to be doing and what the limitations of my instrument are? Um, and when I kept, so I thought I'll do this score, but actually it needs it need a lot more explanation than that. And we were only kind of going to meet about a half an hour before the performance. Uh, so I ended up just doing little videos and giving him a full demonstration of this is what the instrument can do and this is what the instrument can't do, you know, because that actually is also really important. If we were going to have, um, you know, we we're going to have an improv piece together, I needed to tell him, for instance, that I couldn't play very fast <laughs> because, of, you know, so how I uh, how I had uh, programmed it, I thought I, I actually can't play any faster than a note per every 40 milliseconds. So you need to know that. <laughs> like. Because if if we're going to do a call and response, it's not really going to work if you do like really fast passages and I can't do anything like that, you know. So it's kind of these weird conversations you end up having. Um, well, it was, you know, his response was was quite funny because he said um, uh, that it was the first time he had rehearsed with someone watching YouTube lying in bed or something, you know, because I just put, <laughs> it up, just put it up as a private video on YouTube and sent him that link and said, OK, I'll, you know, I'll see you next week. But here, this gives you an idea of what the piece is and talk through it in that way. But it was, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a, it can be a different way of working almost every single time. But I think that's quite exciting yeah. as well. In this piece, uh, at a certain point, do you kind of stop making sound with your voice because you've kind of like seeded the piece enough and you kind of have enough material and now you're just sculpting? Yeah, yeah that's exactly what's happening. Um, you put it so much nicer than I would have. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> uh, nice. Uh, yeah, there's a few points that, I mean, a lot of it is really kind of building up um, tension and the piece is, is so it's so vulnerable that piece that you're just so exposed mm-hmm. with this single voice that it's um and it's just so bare you know that having a point where it just sits itself i think is quite important as well um you know because it, it kind of changes the it changes the intensity of it but it changes um i'm struggling to find the right word um the engagement of it as well, I think, that in that sense, you mm-hmm. you stop engaging as much with the performer and you start engaging more with the sound, I suppose. And the point right. is as well that hopefully it's kind of 
understood at that point that everything is come from has come from the voice. So it's to point out the kind of tomberly rich qualities, I suppose, of the voice and the kind of versatility of it as well. Um, and just to mash up some sounds and be able to sculpt those without constantly producing, I suppose. Right. Yeah. Have you kind of explored doing this maybe with multiple performers as opposed to just a solo? Because you said this one was kind of like, you know, it, it it's vulnerable and it can be bare. What a, what would happen if you like had four four or five people on stage all with all with this uh, with the same stuff basically? Yeah, interesting. I, I want to try that out now. I don't know. I never really thought about <laughs> this being kind of multiple. Um, you know, because I think the isolation and the vulnerability of it is is quite appealing actually, uh, because it's terrifying. Mm-hmm. It's terrifying performing that piece every time. Uh, but that kind of <laughs> <laughs> but then that kind of makes me really excited, and and I think. You know, sometimes you think, why, why am I doing this? <laughs> you know, why am I doing this if I'm terrified? And I'm thinking, actually, that's probably exactly why I am doing this. <laughs> right. <laughs> so we're going to listen to it now. And this is, of course, you playing this. And you can, um, if, if listeners are interested in seeing actually what is happening, the kind of gestures that are being used to, to manipulate the sounds and to make other sounds, um, where can they go see those videos? Uh, I've got most things on my website anyway that just basically link to YouTube. So it's jenkirby.com, J-E-N-N-K-I-R-B-Y.com. All right. So this is phonetics. Oh, my God. 
I was going to make a really bad pun or well, I'm going to oh, I'm going it. to use the title of your piece to make a seamless transition because this piece is called Transition. Um, <laughs> and it's for uh, viola and live electronics. And I watched a video on your on your website of this piece and it appears that there's also gesture control in this one, but it's not the same um, it's it's not the same thing that you were the 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 game track controller that you were using in the last piece, and it looked like the violist was kind of wearing some gloves. So what what's happening here? Uh, it actually is the same controller. It's the same yeah. thing. Okay. <laughs> so, um, but instead, because uh, he's yeah, he he needs his hands freed up, doesn't he? So um, that he is just wearing these gloves, and that way, it's so in that piece. Then it's. It's not dealing with height at all. It's just dealing with kind of mm. X and Y space, I suppose. So it means he's not tied to having to move uh, up and down, really. But um, so there, yeah, that was that was a really interesting one to, to work on, actually. That was written specifically for uh, Sebastian Adams, um, just because I really liked his, uh, you know, as well as his playing, of course, Um I really, you know, enjoy his performances as well. He's really quite theatrical in uh, and really, really quite gestural. So, and for a long time, I didn't really want to write an electronics piece that was kind of processing live instrument stuff. I just, um, I, d- I tended to work with with uh, software instruments that I'd built separately and consider them their mm-hmm. own thing. Uh, but but when I, you know, I got an idea to perform or to write, to write for him then. I, so I was... Yeah, definitely quite excited about that because um, it was to kind of capture some of the movements he's already making and to allow them to further elaborate, I suppose, on uh, and develop the sounds that he's producing. Uh, but also to have kind of the the electronics part to be an instrument that he kind of responds to on his own as well. So that that the control is kind of varies throughout the piece, I suppose, as to... Mm. Um, so sometimes he's playing... Uh, the electronics sometimes the electronics are playing him a little bit I think uh, and it's to and again it kind of allows the piece to like sit for a moment as well um, but it's it's interesting how you can have one idea for it as as the performer so I, I bought a viola to try and like work out some of these things how how I could how what the movements were and how I could you know try to develop those because I realized just holding my arms in in empty space just wasn't cutting it. <laughs> it's useful to have an <laughs> instrument in your hands. So, <laughs> um, so uh, so yeah. So I bought a viola, and then I thought, oh, these are the gestures he'd make, and and I kind of said, one of there's a, an element where he needs to move forward in order to 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 change something in the electronics. Um, and when I gave it to him first, the first thing he did was you know just take like jump about two feet forward and I'm thinking no you just needed to move your arm you know like that but but I thought it's really interesting as well to see because there's no rule book for this stuff so how everyone there's no right and wrong right and how everyone interprets that is completely different and and just and that's quite exciting actually because then you know are through some doing some rehearsals you kind of bring it back and say oh well, it turns out that um, me playing the viola for like a month <laughs> and producing these sounds wasn't wasn't quite as good as what you can do. It seems uh, so. Right. Yeah. And you kind of come back and redevelop things, and a lot of the stuff with like there can just be like some really tedious technical aspects of that as well. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think once everyone kind of accepts that and think, oh, you know, if you if you're dealing with it just you're miking up an instrument that you're probably going to deal with balancing levels to make sure you don't get feedback and all these kind of things and it's 
especially if you're like, you know, if you're sampling certain elements as well, it's going to be different every single time. And when you embrace that, it becomes really exciting because it means you can have a 20 minute performance of a piece and a five minute performance of the same piece. And and they're completely different, but yet somehow still recognisable as the same piece of music. Um, so that's kind of the that's what I mean a little bit about the the electronics kind of take it in a different direction as well. And you can choose to kind of take more control or you can choose to kind of respond a little bit to it and, and go off down mm-hmm. a tangent if you wish. Um, it's it's interesting that, you know, with the way you kind of described it, it really seems like it is truly live interactive electronics. You know, most most interactive, like quote unquote interactive electronic pieces are actually reactive electronics as opposed to actually developing a conversation with the player. Because it, the, what you said was basically like the the player it the the interaction that happens can change so the player is almost uh kind of exploring how how they are changing or or how they're controlling the electronics in a way so i thought the the way you put it was was beautiful how the the electronics are playing them in a way yeah i think um I think it gives you something really interesting to play with because uh, that's kind of the fun just dealing with electronics as well, I think, is that, uh, you know, I I rarely have a plan of producing something really, really specific and then I'm able to do that because I always just get something that's way more interesting than what I had in my head, you know. Right, Uh, You know, it'll just, it feeds back to you if you allow it and you listen to it. It'll, It'll produce different things and, and even kind of, and especially if you're dealing with kind of convoluted processes that, that that are really reshaping the sound that they get when you deal with it, it always starts with the source then um only if that only has to change a slight a slight bit and it just because it's kind of convolved over and over again it really produces very significantly different results mm-hmm. um the nice thing about this piece is that the um for the performer i think is that the performer's got quite a lot of control in the pacing of the piece uh which is some, sometimes really difficult with with live electronics, actually, I mean, it's a big problem with kind of with uh, instrument and tape is because you've you've got this fixed element. Um, but even with live electronics, it tends to be this processes that get kicked off at different times, and allowing the the performer to control that can can be quite difficult because there's a certain amount of well, you're asking them to perform two things at once, and mm-hmm. oh, it's a little bit pat your head and rub your belly. I don't know. Um, so it is kind of it is a bit of a challenge, but. So there are, uh, with, with this piece then, the, the performer does just move things on with a foot switch, which is quite common as well. Um, mm-hmm. But it's it's knowing that they're exactly what happens at those and, and being able to say that, well, I can play this for as long as I want without moving forward or um, this isn't working quite as I expected. Let's just move on, you know, and it's kind of yeah. nice to have some of that freedom, I think. This, this, in a way, this must be kind of like making choreography. I mean, how has your... You kind of talked a little bit about it before, but how has your process evolved when when working with controllers and live and live instruments? I mean, how you you, you well, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's um, it's definitely on my mind quite a bit, actually. Um, you know, you just reminded me of it was a good few years ago. We did a concert with the Dublin Laptop Orchestra and, and when we were rehearsing and we were trying to produce a particular sound, you know, uh, that one of the one of the other performers asked me, is that how you're going to do it? And I went, what do you, what do you mean? Yeah, I've got it. I finally got it. You know, it took me a while and I, I figured it out. 
he said, I said, what do you mean? Why would you, why would you ask that? Well, it's just because this is what you're doing. And he recreated my posture. And he was like, you know, if, if, if you want to stand up on stage and do that, you can. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and it was quite interesting to think, oh, actually, maybe I can produce a, a more graceful way of doing this. Right, you know? yeah. Um, and it's, I think it's something that hasn't really kicked off too much in in this kind of in the live electronics world actually but uh, I mean there are some people doing it but I think it's a little bit behind considering it is so important in there's so much etiquette around uh, classical music performance and in um, mm-hmm. you know whether you want to argue about whether that's a good thing or a bad thing it's a separate story really but um, but there is there is so much grace in that and there is so much consideration for uh, physical movement in in classical music already, and that really hasn't come into it yet with with live electronics. I think, and it's partially because it's quite different every time, and a lot of people mm-hmm. think that there's no need for it all. It's purely acousmatic, or um, but it's quite a difficult thing to deal with because you you know we see you don't you know I use the same analogy quite a lot that you know I don't need to be able to play the violin to understand what a downbow gesture is. You know, mm-hmm. I my ears are expecting to hear something as soon as I as soon as I see that, and to be able to create something and translate that to live electronics world is quite difficult. You know, I think it's important. Other people might not think it's important. It's fine, um, but I think it's quite important to have this kind of this symbiotic relationship between gesture in sound and gesture in visuals. So that choreography then becomes becomes central to that. Well, no, and I think that's really important because, you know, for the people who don't kind of uh, take take that into consideration, who are, you know, at, at all the electronic festivals, you're going to see someone just standing up there with a laptop pushing buttons and you, you don't know what they're doing. You don't know how they're interacting with it. And at a certain point, it, it, it always crosses my mind when I'm seeing a piece like that. Why couldn't this just be fixed media? Why do you, why does that person have to be up there? And I mean, having the, the visual element of it, whether, whether the, uh, the performer or composer likes it or not, that's a huge part of, part of the piece now, just by virtue of them standing on stage. So I think it's incredibly important that, that the, the visual gesture is linked and it, and is considered. Mm. Um, yeah, it's quite, you know, it's, I'm always a, I try to be a little bit careful when making, when, when talking about some of these things, because I'm not, I, I definitely don't want to say that everyone who's working with life electronics should be considering this. That's fine. They don't have to. I don't, I don't care if no one else does, mm-hmm. but this is, this is how I consider it, I suppose. Um, right. and that, that, and that, you know, for me, I, I'm not I, like, I've done it as well, but I'm not too pleased with just standing on stage and doing something that doesn't visually communicate with an audience as well. Um, that's something that that is quite important to me. I think to to have that kind of visual communication. Um, I find it's more engaging for audiences to be able to do that. But but I also think that there's so much that with with live electronics that uh, that you get familiar with we're working with controllers and you start to think, oh, people understand this. And then I, and then I'm constantly <laughs> reminded, no, no one has any real idea about what all right. this stuff does. <laughs> you know, and I think, oh, really? I, th- I thought you got that that's what I was doing. You didn't get that, you know? Um, so it's, yeah, it's kind of 
funny. Even that controller, I've had people ask, you know, does sound just come out of that? And I'm like, well, how would that work? You know, <laughs> but it's like, I don't know. It's um, if you've ever tried to explain like what a MIDI controller is to a five year old, like you'll understand. Right. I mean, yeah. I think you've got it now. And then they say, well, what does that button do? Well, nothing, because I haven't told it to do anything yet. I don't get it. This is stupid. This doesn't work. You know, no, it does. But yeah, so it's it's a bit it's tricky, really. But I think it's um, there are so many people doing it though. There are so many people engaging with uh, with the performative elements of of live electronics now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, it's something that it has been engaged with actually. It's whether or not you see it as satisfying. So you know, ever since like electron, ever since speakers were put on stage, um, people said, "Well, why am I looking at speakers? Couldn't I just listen exactly. to this at home?" Yeah. Right. Um, so then people started introducing other kind other elements. Uh, it's the reason, you know, then they say, well, let's have lighting. Well, the performance becomes something else now. And um, in the kind of, uh, in the EDM scene, no one, no one cares that, that, that DJs are just a lot of them. I have to be careful saying this, that a lot of them are kind of just getting <laughs> play. Like, because, you know, a lot of people uh-huh. don't care because that's not what they're there for. They don't mind. And so I think people can just be, it should just be easier to be more honest about those things because the performance element in EDM now is completely the audience. The audience is the theatre. Uh, the DJ mm-hmm. isn't really the theatre anymore. Most of the time you can't, there are boards up in front, it's just lighting. You can't even see the equipment anyway. Um, so that that seems to be kind of what those that trend has been in the last few years anyway, that it's, so I think it's the, a lot of it is kind of matching energy so that there is, you know, that it's just, uh, kinetic i suppose really that um or kinesthetic that there's a certain amount of uh, bow pressure that goes in to produce a note and then you you hear that note or there's a certain amount of pressure that goes down to hit a key on a piano and you hear that loudness being replicated and we're so used to that transfer of energy that when you don't have that and you have typing on a keyboard it's difficult to understand and a lot of people find that just too much of a barrier uh, so mm-hmm. I, I quite like the physical aspect in performing electronic music you know, for me, it's well, and, and you're also kind of uh, by by doing this in a way, you, you know, you were, you were saying like it's uh, sometimes it's frustrating to to try to have to make that leap with the audience like, oh, this does this, this does that. But in a way, you're also presenting them. You I I would hope that you are engaging them in a way that a lot of other pieces don't do, because, you know, if you see a, a if you just see a, a violist on stage it's like okay, you get a downbow, you get a pizzicato, you 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 understand how it's working. But when you add that other element in, you are immediately kind of engaging them to say, oh, how does this work? You know, mm. like they're they're trying to figure it out as well during the performance. So like in a way, you <laughs> you know the so many classical. Well, I don't know. Um, Classical audiences can be a little bit blasé about about listening, but you are you're almost forcing them to to perk up and say, "Oh, what what? Huh? What was that? What? How is he doing? What is going? You know, like that." And I think that's really cool. <laughs> that's funny. It could also seem as just being really arrogant. <laughs> True. Just like, also a possibility. Yeah. Uh, it's, <laughs> yeah. I did. Um. Uh, I I really I really focus on uh, the listener and the audience quite a lot. So I like to think about uh, during a piece, are they getting bored now or maybe I should intentionally bore them or, you know, how am I going to re-engage them here or how am I going to surprise them with this element and play with their expectation a bit? Um, so that kind of stuff really 
interests mm-hmm. me. So I, I did a, I did a um, piece a few years back. It was something that I was exploring quite a lot. It was kind of um, playing with the edge of audibility, really. So, um, mm-hmm. so when you you know, if you have performers play so quietly that sometimes you can hear it and sometimes you can't. And it's kind of, so you get to a point where you, and because you see it, you start imagining what you hear. Um, so when you see someone play and you don't hear it, you imagine a sound with it. And you, you do that in, a, in an environment, especially when you're in a concert hall where you're in the room, you think, well, they must be playing. Am I still just hearing this? Um, so I've done stuff like that before. And what I've always been really interested in is how, you know, I like to just be in the room and observe how people respond to things. Uh, and what I found is, you know, people just, they lean forward and they and they try to see what's going on because we're all just trying to figure things out and we're all trying to uh-huh. just listen to, you know, some bit of causal listening, I suppose, to just try and understand what it is that, that we're hearing and seeing. Um, whereas it would be a lot easier to just give them something that they could close their eyes to. But I don't know. Maybe I'm just not that nice. Uh, I like to challenge that a bit much more. <laughs> so I guess I have one possible guess as to the meaning of the title. And you can tell me if I'm just way off. But I, the, the piece is called Transition. Are you saying that at this moment in history, we are at a point for musicians where they are increasingly ceasing to be purely acoustic sound producers and are moving towards being electroacoustic sound producers. That's pretty big. That's pretty grand. That uh, uh, sounds really good, but it's not. <laughs> so really it's not right at all. Okay. Uh, but it sounds great, though. It could be. It sounds way better than what I had. It was more. Um, it was more on a on a smaller scale for me. Um, that, uh, yeah, it was more kind of. Uh, for me, it was actually really about me transitioning to uh, a live uh, processing type of Mm, live electronics. Um, And then, so I had that idea in my head and then because of that, it kind of permeated throughout the piece. So I was looking at how to transition from different musical elements because the score to that is, is really minimal. You know, there are, there are just these cells um, and it's, this is your seeding value. Start with this and go where, go where you want with it kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, so that was, so it was, it was, yeah, it was kind of permeated throughout. It was sometimes, I use those titles quite a lot just to keep me focused. And then I realized, okay. God, I should really change the titles because that's so boring, you know. <laughs> but I never remember to. <laughs> or I can't, I, I just can't come well, up with a grand title. <laughs> well, we're going to listen to it now. And this piece, uh, again, is called Transition and it's being performed by Sebastian Adams.
I knew that was going to be wrong, but... <laughs> but it sounds so great, though. I mean, I could have taken the credit for that and said, yes, spot on, but I just couldn't do it, you know? <laughs> awesome. Nice. So let's talk about your last piece called Moments. And this ensemble, clarinet, trombone, percussion, and cello. How did that come about? It was a commission from the Association of Irish Composers. Um, oh, it's a few years ago now, not that long ago, maybe four, five, six years ago. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, it was an interesting ensemble to write for. I suppose it was a yeah a bit challenging. Was that just kind of what you were assigned? Yes. Yeah. So yeah, the kind of the piece I suppose kind of tries to borrow a little bit from moment time a moment form a moment time mm-hmm. um so yeah hence the moments i kind of like the idea of these kind of discrete elements uh that somehow have some unity through uh, I don't know, kind of crossing back and forth i suppose um mm-hmm. so that was kind of the the general idea um you know a lot of my pieces whether they be electronic or or acoustic tend to have kind of a lot of theater or at least considering a lot of those elements and gesture and often um subversion and elements of humor as well so you know i mentioned that sometimes i I think about the i think about you know what the listener is thinking what the audience is thinking uh only only is just to hope that it'll be helpful to write you know uh but Uh i think about what the performers are thinking as well and i'm thinking you know so i've written pieces where i thought maybe the performer is reading this going this is a bit boring or God, I hate this passage or what time is it, you know, and, and I don't know. I just think about those things. So sometimes I've like just inserted those into pieces um, where I, I did I did a, a piece where uh, I have the, one of the performers turns to the other and just whispers, you know, where are we? Um, and <laughs> it's pretty bad, you know. Yeah, it's pretty bad because I'm thinking, why do I do this to these poor people? Um, because you know, everyone thinks, oh my god, so unprofessional. You know, they didn't even know they yeah. got lost and they said it out loud, and we all heard like, of course they didn't. But you wouldn't think someone wrote that in a score. It just sounds a bit silly. Um, so this oh. this piece moments kind of does something a little bit similar. I kind of thought. Uh, you know, there's kind of cheeky elements, I suppose, with the percussion that's in there. I thought, oh, maybe the percussionist can just have some fun and run away with the piece a little bit. And uh, so they kind of, and I, I kind of inserted like this small bit of like, what is it, a, a bit like a heavy rock riff or something in uh-huh. there. Uh, and I thought maybe this would be funny just to have them run away with this. And when they run away with it, then the clarinetist leaves uh, his station, goes up and um, and just like hits a triangle to like, you know, to break. Come back, come back around, stop having fun, stop going off on a tangent and just bring us back to the room, you know. Uh, and I, I think because it's just, it's, maybe it just mimics quite a lot of things. It's maybe the audience is is just drifting in different ways as well. And you're thinking, no, 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 mm-hmm. come back, come back and listen again. Uh, but then also encouraging them to drift as well um, in some ways. So, yeah, I kind of, I, I, I try to have pieces that have kind of elements of, of that kind of excitement and that kind of unexpected kind of behavior, the things that are shouldn't be allowed. And um, because I find it, it's a relief. And I usually find that uh, when, when some of that stuff works well, that um, I've heard a lot of people say that they kind of feel like it's a breath, breath of fresh air in some ways. So, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and then, and then on like a more like uh, deeper philosophical level, I think, 
you know, that's if someone's giving up their time to, you know, the performers are giving up their time to rehearse and perform this piece uh, and the audience members are giving up their time to, to come in and put themselves in this situation as well. I mean, it feels uh, it feels quite important to be able to give everyone, like, give something that they didn't have before, that there was something put right. into that time that they couldn't have got before. Maybe that's a bit of epic grand in some ways, or maybe it's completely typical from, that's what everyone is achieving or attempting to achieve. Um, but I, I just think, you know, when you have that kind of positive reaction and and they get something that they didn't expect and sometimes you kind of see this sense of relief in some ways. Uh, and that's that feels really good to me, that that feels mm-hmm. like I've achieved something, maybe. Yeah. Humor humor in music for for me is just so so difficult to pull off. Um, and you you mentioned that, you know, you were you were kind of borrowing from moment form from um people like Stockhausen or or even Stravinsky earlier with the block the block technique or something like that. For me, this piece kind of sounds like it has connections to Webern a little bit, you know, in the yeah. texture. Um you know that might not be what you were thinking of, but that's that's what it made me think of. But in terms of, in terms of humor, like have you have you had any like where who are your successful models for imbuing humor in music or imbuing music with humor? Um, I think uh, Eric Satie has done quite a bit to be quite humorous. Oh, yeah. I think yeah, and. Um, Mauricio Cagle as well. I I quite like a lot of his guys. It's really stark and it's and it's just so uncomfortable. But I I think that's quite genius. Mm-hmm. So I guess I kind of like to look at the it, it, some of those are kind of the extremes of it, and then to see how you could do it on a more on a more subtle level, I suppose. Um, right. I quite, yeah, I quite like the subtle approach. Uh, There's an Irish composer Andrew Hamilton, um, and he's written pieces titled things like. Uh, music for people who don't like people or music for people who don't like art. And, and I just, I just love the title so much. Um, uh, you know, I just, yeah, I think that I just think those titles are really great. I'm not sure when I did hear, I did hear, I think or I heard an interview week a few years back where I think he didn't intend initially for his pieces to be uh, humorous. Uh, I felt really bad then. Cause I thought, I thought they were really hilarious and I thought they were right. kind of meant to be, um, <laughs> But, you know, but but I guess, yeah, some people don't expect... Uh, I've had people apologize to me for laughing, you know, and I thought, why are you, why are you sorry? Like, no, that's the point. Yeah, yeah. But it's kind of, you know, at the same time, it's... Uh, yeah, I've realized a lot of my stuff tends to have, like, some punchline or something in there, which is a bit cheesy, but then um, I'm not really sure. I don't really usually set out for pieces to have, you know, this is going to be funny somewhere. I don't ever really think mm-hmm. about it in that sense. It just... Uh, I try to just let it find its way out, I suppose, by, you know, I try to visualize the performance of the piece quite a lot. And I think about the different movements and how that might relate to certain things. And um, and it's kind of, yeah, the more subtle elements. I mean, you can always have little quirky sounds in there. I think that things are sure. Just, right. Yeah. And maybe and people don't think, you know, you're supposed to just appreciate them for the sounds they are and not laugh because it's not meant to be funny. And it's like, well it's okay if that sound just happened to sound kind of funny, then that's okay. You can giggle, you know? Um, yeah. So maybe it's, maybe it's just like loosening our grip on, on a lot of those things. Maybe that's real. My, mm-hmm. my reason for it is that it's okay for you to be, you can be really serious about your music, uh, uh, but also be funny about it. Mm-hmm. Um, Who are we going to hear on this recording? Uh, 
It was performed by Paul Rowe, Roddy O'Keefe, Adrian Mantu, and Richard O'Donnell. Great. So this is Moments.
We uh, have come to the last question, the question that I ask all the composers or artists that are on the podcast, and that is, how did you come to music as something that you wanted to pursue for your life? It's a big question. Um, it is. <laughs> so I, I started off, you know, when I went studying, I suppose I started off uh, by studying computer science. Um, although, you know, I was always kind of doing music in my own time I just figured I really wanted to learn how to program and I thought I couldn't do that myself it turns out people can <laughs> uh, but I didn't know that at the time <laughs> uh, so I yeah so I studied um, software development and kind of after that I, I, it was always kind of my intention to get to fo- refocus a bit on music I suppose um, so after that I was kind of really struggling to decide whether I should do a master's in uh, cryptography or a master's in music technology. <laughs> oh man, those were your two choices. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I know, I know. My, my undergrad choices were like construction studies or computer science. I don't know. I just thought like, yeah, it was a bit bizarre now that I think about it. Um, so yes, uh, it was kind of networking or, and, and cryptography or music technology. Uh, and I decided music technology. Um, I'm still interested in cryptography. I still, I still got it in there in my master's, actually. But anyway, uh-huh. um, there's always ways to find like you, you, how how you compare completely different disciplines up. Uh, actually, in this case, these aren't very different disciplines, but they are to maybe some people. Um, but yeah, you, I think you can always bring together your interests. Um, so it was kind of while I was doing that, you know, uh, I don't know, like I was doing. Uh, my undergrad thinking, oh, you know, everyone's got a degree. You got to, you got to do a master's. Okay. And then everyone's got a master's. You, you better do a PhD. And now I'm like, everyone's got a PhD. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you can, What's next? Yeah, yeah. So you can't really win. Uh, <laughs> so it was kind of, you know, really during my master's that, you know, my ears were, my ears were really opened up. Um, and I think up until that point, <laughs> I don't know if I've gotten better, but I kind of, I had like so much quirkiness in my music that I kind of struggled with writing normal music in bands and songs and things. I just, mm-hmm. like, I just, I don't know, I got really bored. I used to play, I played drums for a while and I got really bored just playing st- like 4-4 four, four and, uh, and I got really bored playing like a lot of stuff on the guitar as well and a few other things. Um, and then kind of when I had you know, when I did the master's and it was just so wonderful. Uh, I really had like had some really great lecturers there. Um, and I really had my ears opened up to a whole world of possibilities that I didn't know existed. Uh, so I think that's what I, th- I thought. This is it. There's, there's I don't have to go by those other rules. You know, I can just make whatever I want. And I just absolutely loved that. I loved kind of the sculpting sounds around that. So I kind of got really into uh, tape music then and just writing kind of electroacoustic pieces uh, and I had kind of planned on just focusing on that then for my PhD afterwards I thought yeah I'll just do this stuff just do electronics and then I got into that and went well I could write some other stuff you know so then I kind of went down different paths yeah. you know you, you kind of plan one thing and then go down different paths of exploring different things uh, but that that's like really exciting for me because it means if I ever get bored of writing one type of thing, I can always just write something else. So, you know, I regularly like bring into my students going, you know, this is show me what the work you've done in the past week. This is what I did like in the past week. And they'd be like, this is my dance tune that I made because I could do that if I want, you know, <laughs> no one says I can't do that, you know. Um, right. 
uh, or this is, you know, I made like a rap song recently. It's it's pretty embarrassing, actually, but it's pretty funny. So I thought, you know, this you don't have to listen to any of those kind of ideas that say you can't do any of these things. Uh, you can you can do you can do anything you want. That doesn't mean you can be good at all of these things. Uh, but if you never even try it out, you don't even get the opportunity to be bad, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so that, yeah, that's a weird, weird way around uh, kind of saying how I kind of got, I, I didn't really have a, like a real plan from the word go, but I think I had always had it as a kind of guiding factor, I suppose. So uh, before we go, can you tell everyone where they can find you online and connect with you? Cool. So yeah, if you can get me on uh, my website, jenkirby.com, J-E-N-N-K-I-R-B-Y.com. You'll also get me on the usual social networks, uh, Twitface or one of those things. (laughs) (laughs) The Twitface, yeah. (laughs) On on Twitter, you're just at jenkirby, right? At jenkirby1. Uh, oh, it's me on Twitter, I think. I know, some, I know. Someone else got it. Yeah, uh, I know. And then I did like what I really, really feel really a bit embarrassed about doing on Instagram. I'm like at Doctor Jen Kirby, and uh, I know, I know. I feel a little embarrassed about it because I thought it'd be funny, and I thought, well, no, it's it's just kind of funny to me. Other people just don't think that's funny. <laughs> well, thank you so much for doing this, Jen. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Rob. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.